This is America on the Road, winner of the International Automotive Media Conference Gold Medal Award for Radio, and now in its 25th year on the air. Thanks for being with us as we bring you the latest automotive information from around the world. An American car maker has taken the next steps to going electric, and we'll tell you all about it. And the COVID-19 pandemic has changed the way car dealers do business in ways you wouldn't imagine. We'll have details on that. And we'll also be talking about Tesla. They're making a big change in how they're doing business. So that's all coming up on America on the Road. America on the Road is brought to you by Mercury Insurance and DrivingToday.com. If you're looking to save some money, you should switch to Mercury for your auto and home insurance. Californians save an average of $670 with Mercury. So imagine how much you could save. Get a quote today at mercuryinsurance.com. Hi, I'm Jack D. Red. With me is co-host Chris Teague. Chris is based in Maine. He writes for a bunch of different sites, including Driving Today and Forbes.com, several other sites. And uh, I always uh, want to check in with him. Chris, how are you doing? I'm doing well here in Maine. How are things on your side of the world? Uh, things are going well. We actually had some rain, oddly enough, in Southern California. A sudden little bit of a shower and I, I think it freaked everybody out because we just don't get rain in July. It just doesn't happen here in Southern California, but it did. So, you know, just another indication that the climate, which is always changing, is is changing. And uh, did you do anything fun with your family uh, in the last since we last spoke? I have, uh, although it's all been here at our house. You know, we we've gotten a lot of rain this year. It's been quite a soaker, which has been good for my garden. So we. Uh, Spent some time picking cucumbers and tomatoes, and I made pickles and tomato sauce. So that, that's been our, wow. our past couple of days here. Making pickles. What a great thing. We have a dichotomy in our house. Half the household likes pickles. I'm among them. And then the other half absolutely can't stand them. They don't want to be around them. They don't want to be around people who have eaten them. It's, it's kind of sad in, in many ways. But it's the same here, especially when I'm actually fermenting them. The whole house smells like pickles. There you go. Well, uh, this isn't about that, actually. Uh, this is a car <laughs> show, uh, not about pickles. But And our special guest this week is Rick Toole. He is a COO of a company called AI, and they make advanced LiDAR systems. This is a key building block in the creation of self-driving cars. So uh, a little uh, high-tech uh, this time around in America on the Road. We'll discuss that with him. And in the road test segment, Chris, you will be taking a long look at what particular vehicle? The 2021 Ford Ranger with the STX Special Edition package. Ah, very exciting. And I was driving the full-size GMC Yukon, so we'll talk to you about that as well. All of that and a lot more is coming up in this edition of America on the Road, so stay with us. We will be right back. Thanks so much for being with us right here on America on the Road. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road. Jack Red with you, along with Chris T. We're so happy you're with us. We really do appreciate it. And uh, we have a lot of news for you. In fact, Chris, uh, you have a story. Uh, Tesla is essentially kind of changing the way they're doing business. Tell us a little bit about that, would you? They are. And this is important because we've talked a lot about uh, EV adoption, especially in places like Maine, where the charging network is not built up uh, just yet. But Tesla, for the first time, is planning on opening its uh, proprietary supercharger network to owners of other EVs. Um, and Elon Musk was talking uh, in an investor call yesterday, actually, uh, and outlined how this might work. And he's saying that EV owners who are not Tesla owners would be able to download the Tesla app just like a Tesla owner would and uh, use that to access the supercharger. Now, here in North America, they use a proprietary charging plug. So uh, the owners of non-Tesla EVs, so if you have a Chevy Bolt or a Ford Mustang Mach-E, uh, you would need to buy an adapter 
that allows your car to interface with the supercharger itself. Now, he's also saying that uh, some will be made, be made available. But uh, for Tesla owners, this is kind of controversial, and you may know more about this than me, Jack, given your location. But uh, some Tesla owners say it's already hard for them to get access to a supercharger just because there are so many Tesla owners already in line to get to get charging. What do you think about that? Well, I live in the hotbed of Tesla, that is for certain. And uh, I actually live fairly close to a supercharging station as well here in uh, the South Bay of Southern California. And uh, what you say is absolutely true. There, there have actually, I think, been fistfights at uh, some of the super... That's not a, a frequent occurrence. And I think most Tesla owners are very peaceable kind of people. Uh, but we have seen uh, a lot of controversy over this uh, opening up because uh, I think a lot of Tesla owners would like to keep that for themselves. And they believe that's part of what they purchased, uh, that exclusivity that uh, now is uh, changing. And I think uh, from Elon Musk's point of view, from the Tesla point of view, I believe they feel that they, they gain if electric vehicles gain as a whole. And uh, that's not going to be uh, happening as, as you and I have discussed, unless there's better infrastructure, unless it's easier for people to charge and especially charge when they're uh, traveling. I agree. And they have a, a sort of remedy to this. Uh, Musk is saying that kind of like when you hail an Uber ride and it's a really busy time, the price goes up. They're going to implement dynamic pricing, which so uh, at high demand locations or during high demand times, the price will go up. And I don't know if that's for everyone or just the non-Tesla EV owners, but they're hoping to mitigate some of the demand or some of the influx of outside drivers by using uh, what he's calling dynamic pricing. Well, and you know how popular that is with Uber. Uh, and how consumers <laughs> really love that when they uh, get that surge pricing and, uh, you know, suddenly that trip to the airport that usually cost them $10 is now going to cost them 35 uh, I'm not sure that that's necessarily the answer. It, it might be the answer for demand, but it's uh, certainly not an answer for uh, uh, consumer satisfaction, at least uh, from my point of view. And uh, Maybe you feel the same way, Chris. <laughs> I do. I think it's a boon for non-Tesla owners, especially places like here. But uh, I can see how it would be a real pain if you had a Tesla in, a, in an urban area where it's already busy. Yes, 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 yes. Well, another major car maker, uh, Ford Motor Company, has announced where they will have their uh, Ion Park Center of Battery Learning and battery Global Battery Excellence. Uh, it's going to be in Romulus, Michigan, which is very close by to Dearborn, Michigan, where they're based. Uh, not a big surprise. This is part of a $185 million investment uh, in Ford Ion Park. And the goal is to develop and manufacture lithium ion and solid state battery cells. We've talked about this a little bit uh, on the show before. Uh, and I think the new news is they have decided exactly where they're going to place the center of excellence, which is in Romulus, Michigan. What this indicates is that uh, Ford is pretty gung-ho about uh, moving toward uh, electric vehicles. At the same time, as, as you know, Chris, $185 million, that's a lot of money to you and me. It's not a lot of money in terms of uh, a car company investing. And uh, here's, here's another figure, though, that maybe uh, puts it in perspective. Ford Motor Company also plans to invest $30 billion with a B in electrification by 2025, which is not far off now, is it? It's not. And you're right. That's not a ton of money, at least up front. But if you look at it from their perspective, if they can get away with that, that small investment to start, 
they start in-housing or bring in some of their supply chain, at least uh, with battery production. And this whole this whole microchip thing has been a big wake-up call, I think, to a lot of automakers uh, as they struggle to make vehicles. Right, right. They want to uh, understand uh, batteries better and uh, actually be have proprietary batteries that uh, put them ahead in technology. That, of course, is a great thing. And the battery is one of the keys, if not the major key, uh, to making electric vehicles successful going forward and, and mainstreaming them. Because even now, uh, battery packs are so expensive that electric vehicles are, are basically premium priced and will be until we have some kind of battery breakthrough, I think. I think you're right. But I also think that anything that kind of drives forward solid state battery tech uh, is a good thing for everybody, especially because, you know, they're more energy dense. They're a little bit safer because there's no liquid uh, uh, polymer <laughs> primer in there. I'm not going to going to go too deep because I'm not a scientist, but I think, think anything that advances the technology uh, is good for everybody. Absolutely. I mean, we have seen some uh, lithium-ion battery fires recently, uh, which is a, a little bit problematic. And the, the more uh, vehicles we have out there, and the older they get, the more prone they might be to uh, to fire. So uh, in an accident or some kind of uh, um, problem. Uh, we've seen Chevy Volts, for example. Uh, their uh, Owners are advised not to park them in a garage should they catch fire overnight. <laughs> I'd like to have that time bomb ticking in your garage. I think it's quite scary, although, I mean, the number of fires is real, very, very small compared to the number of vehicles on the road, but it definitely makes you think. So, again, anything that can push that, that down the road a little bit further makes the market safer and more welcoming for everybody. Well, here is a survey from a company called Pure Cars. Uh, they do digital marketing technology uh, for auto dealers, and they have surveyed uh, a ton of dealers. And what they have found is uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has really changed the way dealers do business in many, many ways. Certainly the obvious one is uh, they have gone online much more. Uh, today, the majority of dealers do online financing. They do contactless delivery and online service scheduling and pickup. Uh, you know, more than 85% of all dealers are doing that now. Prior to the pandemic, the focus was on different kinds of things like building your vehicle online, you know, essentially kind of uh, walking through uh, the purchase of a vehicle and doing a virtual walk around, uh, ca calculators, those kinds of things. So it's changed to be much more functional uh, what they're offering. Today, 56% of dealers say they're completing partial deals online for more than half of their customers, including, I think, the uh, Chris Teague family. Is that correct, Chris? <laughs> yeah, we uh, our recent Volvo purchase took place almost all online. We spent less than an hour at the dealership. It was, uh, it was a very refreshing experience. Yeah, so that's good. Prior to the pandemic, a solid majority of dealers weren't processing digital retail transactions are doing it uh, very sparingly, so that has changed. This is one that I, I thought I, I just wasn't aware of. They've changed the way they advertise. 98% of, of dealers, that's a big number, are doing advertising on streaming television, things like Hulu and YouTube TV. Um, they had not been doing that before. And I'm watching more streaming. I think probably we all are. And we're seeing local ads in that, uh, those streaming feeds. And I think that's an interesting and very cost-effective way for uh, dealers to advertise. What's your take on that, Chris? I agree. And just to back that up, uh, a study from Automotive News that just came out uh, in their most recent uh, article yesterday says that some dealers are giving up on marketing altogether just because the demand is so high and the vehicle uh, supply is so low. They know that 
uh, if they have a car on the lot, it's going to sell one way or the other. But on the other side of that, some dealers believe that now is the time to really go all in on marketing uh, and really build the relationships for when the the inventory kind of comes back online. So just a really interesting thing all around. It'll be really uh, exciting to see where things end up by the end of the year, you know, especially if the chip shortage sort of works its way through and we start seeing more supply. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it strikes me as that's like looking out the window and uh, seeing that it's raining and thinking it's going to rain forever. Uh, uh, I think things will certainly change. And uh, so uh, we'll see which which set of dealers, the ones that advertised or the one that didn't, uh, are the winners in, in that decision. When we come back, we will be road testing. Chris will take a long look at the 2021 Ford Ranger STX. And I'm going to take a look at the GMC Yukon full-size SUV. So stay with us for that. Thanks so much for being with us right here on America on the Road. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road with Christine Jackie Red back with you. And it is road test time here on America on the Road. We love road test time because we love talking about the vehicles we've driven over the course of the past week and reviewing them for you. Uh, we're looking at some big vehicles this time around, although I, mine, <laughs> I have to say, is a little bit bigger than yours, Chris. But you were driving the uh, Ford Ranger pickup truck. Uh, tell us all about it. Absolutely. This is a 2021 Ford Ranger uh, STX Special Edition package, and this is this is a package that builds on the base XL trim with uh, larger 18-inch black alloy wheels. Uh, it's got a Sync 3 infotainment system with an 8-inch touchscreen on the inside, uh, dual-zone climate controls, and just some really nice upgrades to the base Ranger package. Um, and the total price came out to be right around $36,000, which isn't bad when you consider that you get a truck with uh, 270 horsepower, 2.3 liter four-cylinder engine, a 10-speed automatic transmission. Um, really nice cloth uh, upholstery on the inside. I was really surprised by that. Uh, and four-wheel drive in this case. So it's a pretty decked-out truck for the money. Um, one thing that I've said about the Ranger, I think maybe even to you in the past, is that it's a very smooth-riding small truck. And uh, it's not as large and imposing as the F-150, but, and we've talked about this too many times, I think it's more or just enough truck for the vast majority of people to do what they need. Uh, I've been able to haul mulch uh, for the garden as I was talking about picking vegetables earlier, uh, hauled furniture to the dump, uh, picked up heavy garbage and, and patio tiles and everything else. And it's just been a real pleasure to use a truck that's easily maneuverable. Uh, it's pretty quiet for what it is. Um, and relatively affordable, as I said. So, Jack, what are your what are your thoughts? Well, I think it's interesting because when you look at a full size pickup truck of say twenty years ago, they're about the same size as a mid size pickup truck is now. Uh, and I totally agree with you. I think it's a very very handy size. I think you have to be confident in your masculinity uh, to uh, take a mid size pickup truck versus a full size pickup truck. And I, you know, I'm being a bit facetious about that, but I think there's some truth in it too. I think a lot of people go, well, you know, this is this seems like the toy truck versus the big one. You know, maybe I should have the big one if I'm the manly man that I uh, picture myself to be. And uh, like you say, I think a midsize truck can do most of the things that uh, people want done, uh, certainly as a, a personal use truck, without any difficulty, and they have the advantage of being garageable and. Uh, just more maneuverable. I think there's a, a lot of advantages to what you say, Chris. Yeah, I mean, look, it's 7,500 maximum, uh, uh, 7,500 pounds of maximum towing capability, which for most people, you know, you could pull a bass boat with that, and it's 1,770 uh, uh, pounds of payload capacity. So in my case, that meant hauling several of these really large, painful, 
uh, patio tiles that we were working with, uh, with really no trouble at all. The truck is very composed on the road. Uh, it's pretty narrow, and some people, I think, with the lifted four-wheel drive pickup trucks complain about axle hop and some wavering on the on the highway, but there's really been none of that with this truck, especially uh, given that it's riding, like I said, on those larger wheels. Um, I haven't had an opportunity to use the four-wheel drive system, but in two-wheel drive around town, it's a very comfortable truck. It's pretty quiet. Like I said, I have room in the back for both kids. Um, and now I'm going to tell you how tall I am, Jack. So at six feet tall, uh, I was able to fit my five-year-old, now almost five-year-old daughter's full-size car seat behind me with no real issue. And then my eight-year-old daughter in her booster seat on the other side, I had plenty of room to kick back behind my wife in the passenger seat, but my wife is only five two. So, um, but well, that is, room. and that's new news. Now we knew you were six feet tall, and we've established that in, in virtually every show we've done, and I think we're on show number sixty-six. Uh, but the fact that your your wife is five two, I think that that was new to me. So, thanks for delivering that information. <laughs> Well, it's an important detail if you can imagine the positioning of the seats uh, with with car seats behind us. But in any case, you know, I said the interior, it's very comfortable. It's uh, cloth upholstery in this case, no leather, nothing super fancy. But uh, I could see how for people who take the truck off road, people who have kids, people who use it as a work truck, uh, the cloth looks to be easily cleanable and it's dark. So uh, plenty of ways that that could be a practical use for for many people. Uh, as I mentioned, eight inch infotainment system running uh, Sync 3, Ford's, Ford software is excellent. It's very easy to use especially when the truck is in motion. There's no complicated menus. Uh, everything is available within one or two taps. So you can really keep your eyes on the road. Um, plenty of interior storage. The door pockets are nice and large. The center console storage is enough to fit, uh, you know, plenty of gear in there, uh, uh, maybe a purse if you really wanted to. Uh, and then the glove box is pretty good too. So all around a good small truck with, with pretty decent capability that I think will be uh, more than enough for most people, Jack. I think so, and I think it's certainly one to look at, and, and certainly Ford Motor Company is pushing the Ranger right now. I think they're having difficulty building all the F-150s that uh, they would like to build and, and get out into the marketplace, and they have some, um, some Ranger um, inventory, and so uh, it's certainly one to take a look at, and I think there's a lot of advantages, as, as you outlined, Chris, uh, so correctly. I was driving what you might call the Big Daddy People Mover, that is the uh, 2021 GMC Yukon full-size SUV. It is a conventional SUV based on a full-size pickup truck uh, platform. Um, and yet it takes you in limousine-like comfort when you're inside it. I think the engineers have realized that uh, this is not for hauling hay bales. It is for hauling people. Uh, so they have uh, tuned it in that way. If you want something even bigger than the Yukon itself, there is the Yukon XL, the extra-large. Uh, that uh, is uh, a bit longer. Actually, it's quite a bit longer and has more uh, luggage space. But uh, I'll tell you, there's plenty of luggage space in the uh, standard Yukon. Of course, the Yukon competes with the, the Chevrolet Tahoe and Suburban. The Suburban is essentially the XL clone. And the, the Tahoe and Yukon are, are very closely aligned. And then there's the Cadillac Escalade. Uh, so that is the... Um, group from General Motors that competes in the segment, and they pretty much dominated this segment. Although Ford has made some inroads with its Expedition recently, and uh, the Lincoln Navigator, of course, is a, a very good vehicle too. So those are the kind of the competitive vehicles to take a look at. 
The good news is that Yukon was all new for 2021. It was maybe not all, all that great for General Motors because it was launched just as the pandemic started, and that's a really terrible time to try and launch a new vehicle. So they've essentially launched it a couple of different times, but uh, they have certainly got it right. One of the things they did uh, for the 2021 is give it an independent rear suspension that results in a lot of good things. Better handling, improved ride. There's more interior space, so uh, really good stuff. They did also a bunch of changes in the interior. It's basically an all-new interior. So a lot of good stuff there. Um, the Yukon is available in four trim levels. Both uh, rear drive and four-wheel drive are available. It has an off-road-oriented AT4 version that is only four-wheel drive. And the pricing uh, ranges fairly widely from a starting price of about $53,000. Uh, the starting price then on the Yukon Denali, which is almost a, its own brand, uh, you know, sub-brand within Yukon, uh, starts at $73,000. So there's a 20 grand difference just uh, amongst the, the various Yukons. But um, a lot of good stuff contained in the Denali, and uh, GMC has been very successful with the Denali trim, loading them up, putting good stuff in them like magnetic ride control and a 15-inch head-up display, 12-way uh, power adjustable driver seats, all, all kinds of good stuff. It also gets a more powerful engine. The base engine is a 355-horsepower, uh, 5.3-liter V8 it uses cylinder deactivation technology to help it with, uh, with fuel economy. What is your take overall on, on the Yukon here, Chris? I think that the latest generation, so the one that started this year, the Yukon, the, the Suburban, and the Escalade, uh, is a really big step forward for them. You know, we talked about the Escalade that I drove, what, about a month ago now. The move to independent rear suspension was a big one for those vehicles. It really, you know, those, they're, very smooth riding riding vehicles now uh, for such a large full-size SUV body on frame construction is really surprising. I think the move to include a diesel option for the Yukon was a great move. Uh, opens up 460 pound foot of torque uh, for best best towing, I think it's really great. Uh, more more cargo room than the uh, Ford Expedition, and I think they look great too. And you know they're giant inside and out, but one thing they've done really well is maximize the interior space for most usefulness. So uh, you don't just have giant open spaces; you have giant open spaces with clever places to store cell phones, small items, large items, uh, and they don't roll around in much, uh, very much. So uh, again, I think they've done a great job with this latest generation, and uh, I can't wait to drive the Yukon. I've only driven the Suburban and the Escalade so far. Well, uh, thanks for bringing up the fact that it has a three-liter inline six-cylinder turbo diesel, 277 horsepower, which doesn't sound all that impressive, but as you mentioned, tons of torque. And then uh, the engine we didn't mention up till now is the 420 horsepower 6.2-liter uh, V8. That also has cylinder deactivation. That is available in the Denali trim. Uh, the, the, the Denali, I think, is a very cost-effective uh, competitor to the Escalade. Uh, and is one, if you're looking at the Escalade, maybe you're not the Denali person or vice versa, because uh, I think there's some psychographics and uh, just uh, you know what you uh, find important, uh, whether you like bling or a little less bling, uh, but certainly uh, those are vehicles to take a look at. You talked about the interior, which is extremely pleasant and has a third row that is very useful. Uh, 
you can put uh, adults back in the third row and they don't feel like uh, fourth-class citizens. Uh, it, it really works out quite well for them. And as you mentioned, there is more uh, luggage space than even the Ford Expedition, the competitive Ford Expedition and the Lincoln Navigator, uh, by actually by quite a bit. Uh, I, we hadn't, hadn't talked about the uh, infotainment system, so let me get into that really quickly. A 10.2-inch uh, touchscreen is standard across the entire lineup. It has wireless Apple CarPlay and wireless Android Auto, so that adds significantly to the functionality. And all in all, this is a great vehicle. If, if your family can afford a GMC Yukon, I'd say step up. Uh, there's so much to like about it. You better have a big garage, but uh, you know it's the type of vehicle that the Nirad family has uh, driven for the last 20 years or so, and uh, it's been terrific. So uh, we recommend them highly. So two highly recommended vehicles, I think, this time around. The Ford Ranger, a great alternative to a full-size pickup truck, and the GMC Yukon, a full-size SUV that uh, is a terrific family vehicle. I agree with you on both fronts. Well, very good. And when we come back... We will be talking about some high-tech stuff. We're going to be talking with Rick Toole, who is the COO of a company called AI, and they make LiDAR systems that are critical to autonomous vehicle driving. So we'll talk with him when we come back. Thanks so much for being with us right here on America on the Road. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road. Jack Nierad back with you, and we're so glad you're with us. We really do appreciate it. And we have a great guest for you, really interesting. I'm, I'm expecting to learn a lot in the next several minutes. Rick Toole is the COO of a company called AI, and it's A capital A and then capital E-Y-E, kind of a cool play on words in the, in the uh, title of the company. Rick, thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Great. Thank you, Jack. It's great to be here. Tell us a little bit about AI. Tell us a bit about your company and how it fits into that whole scheme. Uh, sure. So uh, AI is a company that uh, has designed and produces LiDAR sensors. Um, as, as you may know, LiDAR uh, stands for light detection and ranging. Um, and it, what this allows for is for a sensor to provide extremely accurate and detailed information about the surroundings of a vehicle. So uh, if you can imagine a camera where every single pixel on that camera, every single point of light on that camera, you know exactly within millimeters how far away it is and what its reflectivity is, uh, how bright or dark that object is. That's what a LiDAR does. And to be able to scan the world very rapidly in front of you and be able to create a image that a uh, an AI system, uh, which is uh, maybe maybe some of your uh, listeners have heard of the the Nvidia uh, uh, the AI systems that are helping uh, with autonomous vehicles or uh, other companies that have these sort of uh, perception solutions that uh, are designed specifically to to drive the vehicle. The, the the lidar is considered to be in many cases the seminal sensor that allows that that artificial uh, intelligence network that is driving your car to be able to see extremely precisely um, around the vehicle. So we, we, we have a, we're very excited about being in this space. We believe we have uh, tremendous technology to, to offer, uh, a differentiated technology to offer, and, and we're, just, uh, uh, we're just really, really uh, excited about the future. Tell us a little bit about how this affects the consumer. I mean, certainly uh, um, what you're talking about, I think, really is a technology 
technology that will enable cars to see better than humans can see, understanding where the objects are being seen, where they actually are in relationship to the car. All of that, of course, is crucial uh, for autonomous driving. Tell us a bit more about that, would you? I think that there, in order for an artificial driver to be able to drive accurately um, and to drive better than a human being, it has to do things um, that, that I consider to be are quite extraordinary. Um, obviously, never distracted, needs to be able to see in all sorts of different weather conditions, needs to be able to see equally well at, in, in nighttime conditions or lighttime conditions, never distracted, never blinded, never confused. Uh, these are all uh, very important things because obviously what we're trying to do here is create a sensor solution that that feeds these uh, these autonomous driving processors um, so that they don't make mistakes. Um, and of course, their ability to sense the world is directly proportional to the quality of the sensor, how well the sensor performs, whether that is a radar, whether it's camera, whether it's LIDAR. Um, and, and so what, what we have done is we've developed a LIDAR sensor that is that is rooted and based in, in, in our founders' roots, which is basically aerospace and defense technology and, and mission-critical uh, type of application. So uh, Louis Dussan, uh, when he uh, looked at the problem of LIDAR, he approached it from a standpoint of what was needed, you know, from a experiential standpoint, as opposed to, you know, really, and, and I'm not knocking the other LIDAR companies out there, but a lot of those have come from a, uh, a competition, if you will, like the, the DARPA challenge and things like that. And, and, there, and I'm not belittling that, but what I'm saying is that things happen a whole lot differently uh, in a fighter jet or a, or a cruise missile than they do in, uh, uh, you know, on roads. And so the idea here was Louis came in and said, I, I understand why the decisions were made uh, with some of these LIDARs, but I have a better idea of how we can develop a LIDAR solution that is super reliable, um, super accurate, lower cost, higher performance, uh, you know, all of those things. Because at the end of the day, the most important thing to the perception solution that is driving your vehicle, uh, driving your kids around, driving your family around, uh, you know, is it needs to be able to sense the world extremely accurately and it needs to be able to do that in any weather condition, uh, under any lighting conditions, no matter whether you're on a rural road, whether you're on a highway, whether you're on a city, whatever. And that is where our focus has been, is being able to create this adaptive LIDAR solution that can adapt itself to the needs of those changing environments. And, um, and, and that, is, that is unique to, to AI. And we're, we're really excited that um, we are now moving into that production phase and our uh, uh, companies are actually now uh, you know, validating this technology and putting it on vehicles. It's a very exciting time. It sounds exciting. Let's dive into that a little bit deeper. When I talk to uh, automotive engineers about the, the whole problem of autonomous driving, uh, certainly bad weather is maybe the, the biggest problem they face, uh, the biggest challenge they face. Seeing in, in daytime, in clear conditions, it's, it's hard. <laughs> I'm not minimizing it, but seeing at night, seeing in, in bad weather, seeing through fog, all of those kind of things, that's where big problems can arise, and they can arise immediately. A, a puff of smoke comes across the street, 
and uh, suddenly you're blinded. Uh, talk a bit about how your technology enables that to be defeated. Yeah, it's a, that's a really great question, um, and, and that's, that is to the heart of the problem. Um, the, the, I, I come from a, a, another LiDAR company in my past, and, and you know, so the, the experience there was that the beam patterns were, were very fixed, which basically meant that they did one thing all the time. And one of the things that, that was very interesting with AI and that technology is that instead of having these fixed beam patterns, and most LiDAR companies have that, and what I mean by that is they do the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. It's just like a, a camera, if you can imagine a camera that is that, that has fixed uh, resolution. It does the exact same thing every single time, no matter what, um, and, and that that would be sufficient for all of your picture-taking needs. This, the, 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 in, in this particular world, it's dynamic, right? It's exactly what you said. We, we could be in a rural setting. We could be in a city setting. We can have, even in a city, you can have all sorts of strange things about You can have a street block because of uh, construction. You can have uh, man, you know, uh, these, these manhole covers that are open and, and work crews are working around them and you have children running across the street and animals and the, the world is very dynamic and weather is a, is a huge problem. So when you're trying to solve the self-driving car problem to say, under these ideal conditions, I can make the car drive itself. That's one thing. But to basically say, I'm going to be able to do this under all conditions and that I'm going to be able to detect all of these corner cases and deal with those corner cases safely, that is the real trick. And I think that the, 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 the technology that's in our LiDAR is the fact that we have a very high-speed vertical and horizontal scan capability, meaning that we can dynamically scan the world. If you can imagine, I don't know if you remember uh, some of your listeners may remember the uh, the laser light shows where uh, you know you would listen to Pink Floyd and go to a, a planetarium, um, and you could see that the that the laser that you had one or two lasers that were being scanned all over the place very rapidly and creating these these really dynamic, exciting patterns and things like that. Our our architecture is very similar, except we use these really tiny. Uh, shock resistant and uh, uh, MIMS to actually steer our beams and, and that allows us to do it very rapidly both on the vertical axis and the horizontal axis. So what that means is we can change the way that we are scanning the world uh, at any given moment in time to suit the environment. We can also change uh, the power that we're dumping into the laser so that if we need more more laser power, still being 100% eye safe because that is absolutely critical. That is a that is a fundamental tenet of LIDAR. Uh, it is government regulated. We, we understand what that means. But, but to be able to increase power, decrease power, to be able to change the beam pattern, to be able to look nearer or farther, farther, to change the sensitivity of our receivers, whatever we may need to do dynamically and to adapt to the environment, that is what our sensor can do. And a lot has been made of this technology called edge compute. And we hear a lot about that these days, that, that edge computing is all the rage for, for artificial intelligence systems. And yet, LiDAR systems don't have not benefited from this ability to do edge computing, to make decisions uh, out there at the sensor level to say, okay, I'm going to do this because it will it will be advantageous for the compute system in the back. It's almost like this this automatic system that you have with your eyes, where you don't your brain before you can even process something out of the corner of your eye, you move your eye, right? You see something and you move your eye. This is the type of system that edge compute does for us with with our lidar. So 
So from a technology standpoint, the ability to dynamically scan the world and change the pattern based upon changing conditions is how we achieve that. And this is unique to AI. This is this technology is not is not being used by any of our competitors. This is a unique technology to AI. And I think this is why um, uh, companies like Continental have chosen uh, the, the AI system in order to base their long range LIDAR on uh, is for, for these very reasons I've mentioned. And you have to do all this. I mean, obviously, <laughs> this is uh, technical in the extreme, right? But you have to do this also at cost. I mean, it's one thing uh, to provide a system that's going to work in an intercontinental ballistic missile or in a fighter jet uh, where you have uh, presumably a lot higher budget than for a $40,000 or $50,000 automobile. Talk to me about the, the challenges of cost and how you uh, get past that in developing systems that are workable in automobiles. Well, you're absolutely right. Cost is cost is 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 critical. Um, you know, we th th there's a little bit of a I have a little bit of two views on this, and, I, and I'll give you a personal view. Uh, my personal view is that uh, you know, at, at some level, uh, I, I'm willing to invest more in a good sensor to protect my family than to say, well, you know, I I, I don't need that. Um, you know, we we've all been affected by car accidents. We know what what uh, what can happen. Uh, we know that speeds are getting higher. We know that mass is getting higher. When you look at these uh, electric vehicles, they're getting much heavier, which means a lot more momentum, uh, which means they do a whole lot more damage when they when they slam into things. Um, so I, I I believe, and 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 we're not seeing this huge decrease in um, accident rates and fatalities on highways that we would like to see. So one side of me basically says, look, I understand that we have to get the cost and rein it in. But on the other side, it's like, look, I, I'm willing to pay a premium um, you know, to save my family from the trauma of a debilitating accident um, you know, or even a potentially fatal accident. Uh, but putting that aside for a moment, the, the cost you know, is now getting to the point with LIDAR where it is, it is in a zone where it is available for automotive makers to put in their vehicles. And working with Continental has been, has been fantastic because they're the world leader in radar. They just shipped their 100 millionth radar unit. They've shipped millions of uh, LIDAR-based camera systems uh, in, in the past. Uh, they've just launched a new LIDAR system, which is their short-range flash LIDAR. And um, uh, shortly, uh, they, they've made the announcements on the long-range LIDAR, which is the uh, AI-based technology. Um, so we, we know what cost the OEMs are saying they must have in order to meet the uh, OEM cost requirements, and, and we're meeting that. Uh, we have a modular design with, with four major subsystems, and we've moved, as I said, with this edge compute, we've moved a lot of the complexity, complex, complexity sorry, into the software, which basically means that we have these basic building blocks of hardware that we can turn the cost knobs on. So we have this modular design, which allows us to be really aggressive with cost, and then we're able to control that by hardened software and move the complexity there. And so that's how we're turning those cost knobs through mass production, through uh, technology maturity, um, through a, a simplified architecture and design, and uh, by having a lot of the complexity required to adapt the LiDAR to the changing conditions um, into the software. But you're absolutely right. Uh, OEMs are very sensitive to cost for, uh, for these types of sensors. Boy, are they. And we are talking with Rick Toole. He is the COO of AI uh, about this, uh, this fascinating process of uh, putting together automated 
driving. Uh, certainly testing, validating uh, the systems is of critical importance, right? I mean, you're trusting someone's life to this, several lives, many lives, uh, thousands of lives are being trusted to these kinds of systems. Talk a bit about validation and, and how you go about doing that and, and what you've experienced in terms of validation of the, the uh, technology. Well, you know, our business strategy has been to, uh, to to work with automotive tier ones, not to go it alone, not to say we're going to be a tier one. We're going to become, an, uh, you know, we're a tech startup. But in a few years, we're going to do what has taken, you know, in some cases like Conti, 100 plus years uh, to, to become a reliable automotive supplier. They understand validation and understand exactly what uh, what that means uh, to have a sensor that is going to perform uh, through all the shock and vibe, all the temperature variations, all of the, the, the cranks when you turn that key and you're you're cranking and you're hitting the system with uh, uh, you know with with voltage and and you have all of the uh, the things that happen the, the the water, the mud, the snow, the ice, the salt, the, all of these things that happen in, in a car environment. Conti is is you know that's what they do. That's what tier ones do, and that's why our business strategy has been and will continue to be to work with. Uh, automotive tier ones to do that. Now, from a validation standpoint, you know, coming from a team that has designed for aerospace and defense technology and in mission critical applications, they know a lot about building systems that operate in these uh, complex environments, uh, how to design robust systems, which is why we have made design choices specifically to be resistant to shock and vibe, specifically to be able to operate over temp, specifically to be able to operate in a variety of weather conditions. This is one of the things that drove our uh, choice of uh, laser frequency, which is 1550 nanometer. Uh, the reason why is, is because it, it operates well in dust, in snow, in smoke, in water, in fog, et cetera. We've, we've, we've made these choices consciously in order to make it uh, a solution that can be validated in these hardened environments. We're also moving into some other areas like like trains, uh, like large construction equipment, like uh, trucking, et cetera, not just automotive. So these, this, so our system has to be designed to be extraordinarily robust for that. So you know, the, the design choices that we made have led to uh, the ability to validate the design. And then, of course, Continental uh, has affirmed that um, and has been able to uh, has been able to certify that the design uh, will be completely validated for OEMs. But you're right; you're placing this you're placing the sensor in a vehicle, and it's expected that um, while the driver is driving, that if something should happen, uh, a, a car stops short, uh, a pedestrian steps out in front, a bike crosses the road, that this sensor is going to detect that and is going to properly and rapidly advise the compute system in order to to take the break, the, the necessary action for brake throttle and steering in order to avoid an accident or minimize the 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 the, the, the uh, outcome of an accident so you're absolutely right the uh, the validation and verification of these systems is extremely important well the billion dollar question uh, as we come to the end of the interview here and I wish we had a lot more time because uh, I'm fascinated by this stuff Rick but I, I want your prediction about how soon we're going to see true autonomous vehicles in the marketplace. I know it's it's a big question, and I know there's a lot of speculation involved, but certainly you are closer to this than uh, anybody I can think of. So uh, I want your take on that. Well, Jack, I you know I, I kind of stopped giving dates for that. I, I think that 
Um, you know, we, we developed the sensor uh, which, which advises the compute platforms for autonomy. Um, I, I think that, that you, you, you have to define your terms, whether it's 35 miles per hour below, uh, you know, we're seeing shuttles. Um, uh, these, uh, these shuttles that run around campuses, large corporate campuses, college campuses, retirement homes, we're seeing those being deployed without um, uh, drivers or, or attendants now. So you can argue that that's full autonomy, that that is a, a closed loop type of a system. It only goes certain places, stops certain places. Uh, it's a very uh, controlled environment. We're seeing that today. Um, I think that when you start talking about, I get in my car, you know, I, I have my cup of coffee, it's ice cold outside, I need to get to the office, and I tell my car to take me to the office, and it just backs out and gets me there. And I think we're, we're, we're still a few years off from that, uh, that level of autonomy. However, I do believe that we are getting much closer to what I call these level plus systems where the driver is not actually driving the vehicle, the driver is advising the vehicle on the driving, which means if I'm driving down the road, and if I make a turn, and that turn is gonna result in an accident, or I'm going to hit someone, or I'm going to, uh, to do something that is just completely silly, the car does not allow me to do it because the car is doing the driving, the driver's making the suggestions. The driver says, okay, I wanna go here, I'm gonna exit at this ramp, I wanna do this, I'm gonna do that. It's just like when you're driving with Google Maps, if you miss the exit, it can re-navigate and say, okay, I, I, I know where you wanna go and, and I'll help you get there, but I'm gonna make sure that you do it safely. I think that we're much, much closer to that level of autonomy, especially highway autonomy where perhaps Perhaps at some point you'll be able to go hands off, eyes off um, within the next couple of years and let the car drive for some long period of time uh, and be able to do that safely. But the trick is re-engagement. If the vehicle, the, the problem with full autonomy is it's either all or nothing because the amount of time it takes to re-engage the driver, have them get into a situational awareness type of position to be able to take control of the wheel if the car is not able to do full autonomy, that is, uh, that's just not a good situation. So I, I think we're still quite a few years away uh, from that, but I do believe that cars that will keep you from having accidents, collisions, making bad choices. Um, I think that we're very, very close to that. We're seeing a lot of those systems getting on the highway now. Um, I do think that we're going to see some leader follower type of programs for trucks, um, where you have a leader that's that, that's a, an actual human driver and the other trucks are following uh, that, that, that lead trucks lead. I think you'll see these sort of things long before you see full autonomy. Well, it totally makes sense to me. And uh, a lot of this autonomy sounds a lot like having my uh, wife in the passenger seat and advising me. Exactly uh, <laughs> right. So, exactly right. So I get that. Uh, so Rick Tool, uh, Tool, thanks so much for being with us. You're, uh, as you know, you're the CEO, COO of AI. Boy, there are a lot of letters there, COO and AI, uh, a ton of letters. But thanks so much for being with us. I, I learned a lot. I think we could uh, chat for another hour or so, and I'd learn so much more. But th thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Great, Jack. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. And stay with us, everybody. We'll be right back right here on America on the Road. Well, interesting interview on LIDAR. Thanks so much for staying with us right here on America on the Road. This is Jackie Red with you along with Chris Teague. And we appreciate you being with us. It is listener question time here on America on the Road. And we have, I think, a, an interesting listener question. This is from Shelley in San Jose, California. The question is this. I've heard that there are subsidies for people who buy EVs. How do I find out about them? 
Well, it's a, a great question, first of all, and there are subsidies, and depending on where you live, you might be able to double up. So uh, the federal government offers up to $7,500 tax credit. So keep in mind, this is not a check that you get back once you go and buy a new EV. It's a, a rebate or a refund or uh, a credit at the end of the year on the taxes that you owe. Uh, depending on how many units a manufacturer has sold, a car manufacturer, uh, that that starts to slide down as they approach the 200,000 unit mark. So it could be 7,500, it could be 5,000 or less. But if you want to find out, if you're curious about a specific model, you can go to fueleconomy.gov and they have a listing of all the models that are on sale today, whether they're PHEVs or an EV, uh, and they will tell you exactly how much tax uh, credit dollars you could be eligible for at the end of the year. Uh, And if you live in a place like Maine, we have Efficiency Maine that also does a separate rebate program. So uh, check with your local officials as well. It should be easy to find on a Google search uh, and find out if you're eligible for even more money back. Right. I mean, check locally and also check your utility. Uh, It might be that uh, your utility company, the company that provides you with electricity, uh, will offer you some kind of subsidy or rebate if you install an electric vehicle charger in your home. And that can be expensive, so look for that subsidy. Uh, It makes all the sense in the world to uh, try and get all the money you can uh, as you're doing that leading edge thing of of buying an electric vehicle. And that, I think, is the answer to the question and also our show for this week. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for being our co-host again this week. Thank you so much, Jack, for having me. And as always, thanks, everyone, for listening. And if you want to uh, hear more of what we do, go ahead and hit like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. It'll help us continue to grow and bring more people along for the ride. If you like the show, please pass it along to a friend or uh, acquaintance who you think would like to hear two guys talking about cars. That's what we do right here on America on the Road. I'd also like to turn you on to uh, my most recent book, The GR Factor, Unleashing the Undeniable Power of the Golden Rule. That's on sale Uh, wherever you buy books. uh, Support your local bookstore if you possibly can. So look for that. We want to thank uh, Chris Teague for uh, co-hosting again with us. Uh, Thank Mercury Insurance for helping sponsor the show. And most of all, thank you for being with us right here on America on the Road. You're the reason we do what we do, and uh, we really appreciate you listening. And join us again for another edition of America on the Road. America on the Road is brought to you by Mercury Insurance and DrivingToday.com. If you're looking to save some money, you should switch to Mercury for your auto and home insurance. Californians save an average of $670 with Mercury, so imagine how much you could save. Get a quote today at MercuryInsurance.com. And if you're looking to buy a car and you need information about cars, go to DrivingToday.com. That's DrivingToday.com, the official automotive website of America on the Road.